The following message is from the 2016 IBCD Summer Institute. Disordered Desires, Bringing Grace to Modern Sexuality. Well, thanks for coming to this workshop. The title is Lies That Fuel Disordered Desires. Um, and, and really, I kind of picked the disordered desires because it fits in the theme of the conference. But, but really, lies that fuel sexual sins is, is what I'm getting at there. And the, the whole purpose of the workshop is really to help me get to think through some things that I've been thinking about in counseling and then see if any of that's helpful for you. But I like to think a lot in terms of, of buckets and categories when I'm um, talking to people and, and thinking through topics. And one of the dynamics in counseling so much and in seeking to help people is an onslaught of information is coming at you and a narrative, a story, a person with experiences in life. And, and just parsing that out, what, what is coming at me? What, what are the roots of these struggles? Where do we need to go? How do we need to think about this situation? And I think that's especially helpful when we think about sexual sins. And a lot of times sexual sins are approached as external problems uh, with kind of external solutions, and meaning really stop doing certain behaviors is just kind of a default I think a lot of us have when we come to dealing with sexual issues. And one of the um, ways that I, I see that a lot is we do the care and discipleship exams. And so those, you know, if you take the first 15 hours of level one, then you do an, an open book, open note um, exam. And the second half of that exam, there are case studies. And, you know, one's dealing with worry and another's dealing with uh, conflict. And then you come to one where the, the situation's about Sam, who's struggling with pornography and he has a girlfriend. And it's fascinating to, to watch the answers as you see the, the first two case studies where we're really seeking to bring in indicative and imperative and draw out the heart and apply biblical solutions. You come to the one about Sam and pornography and it's get the computer out of his room, tell him to stop, break up with his girlfriend, stop serving in the youth ministry, you know, just right into that. And, and it's not that those things are wrong or not part of the solution, but I think it's our default so often to, to not stop and think, What's at the heart that's underneath this outward expression of sin? And the reality is that there's usually a, a web of interconnected lies, a, a web of lies or untruths about three main topics. As, as I think through it, I, I think of three main topics. You find lies about sex, lies about God, and then also lies about success or what it will look like to have victory in that area. And so that's, that's what I plan to look at in turn, but just because we're kind of setting it up, our job as believers in seeking to help one another is really to, to help each other see the vertical component of what's going on in what's so often a very horizontal sin, right? So there's, there's the outward expression of the looking at pornography, masturbation, fornication, like, like all these ways this may be expressing itself. But part of what we're trying to get at is what is going on in this person's heart, especially in his relationship or her relationship with the Lord. Alistair Groves from CCF, he has this helpful article, uh, Exposing the Lies of Pornography and Counseling the Men Who Believe Them. And uh, he lists seven lies that, that men believe in that struggle. But, but he says this, A man needs to recognize that he is estranged from God and has been defending his lifestyle with lies. And um, I think that's just a really helpful way of thinking through it, of the person that's sitting uh, in front of you, 
they have to have a narrative in which this is okay. They have to have reasoning of why they run to these things. And our job is to help them come to better understand their own hearts. And, and like I said, I think the categories of lies about sex, lies about God, and lies about success um, are kind of nice buckets to think about those within. So let's start first with lies about sex. As you're talking with a person who is struggling with sexual sin, part of what you're seeking to draw out is their understanding of sexuality in the first place. And um, I find that this, this distortion often comes in one of two categories, right? One category and one set of lies is that sex is bad, right? And so it's, it's downplaying the goodness of sex as a blessing, um, it could be because of past difficult experiences that have happened to a person and make them say their, their default operating way of thinking is that sex is dirty and sex is wrong. Um, my spouse's sexual desires are dirty or wrong. Um, sex is something that I'll have to do, but I'll never like. Um, and I just can't be attracted to my spouse. All of those, when, I, when we're hearing those things, I put those in the categories of, okay, there's a distortion of what sex is, and it's a distortion towards sex is bad. Uh, then on the flip side, you know, you go to the opposite extreme. You have sex is bad here, and then you flip, and it's sex is God or a God. Uh, sex is more than it really is or is meant to be by God. And so you can hear things coming out uh, of what a person's saying. I- I'm just not getting enough sex. I'm, I'm just not fulfilled with our sex life. I just need to have more sex than my partner wants to have, than my spouse um, desires to have. And then you even start to hear it as as the solution to the struggles someone's facing. I was just in a bad mood, so I just needed to have sex at night or uh, these these need ways of speaking about it. Work was so hard, I just needed a release. All of those things are, they're a distorted view of sex that's putting it into more than it's been created to be. And then sometimes there's a combination of both. Sex is dirty and it's wrong. It may be filled with emotional or even physical pain. But then it's also the only way I feel good about myself. And so it, it has this godlike tendency as well as this dislike of it itself. And you see both distortions happening. And so um, a helpful resource in thinking through these things is on our website, um, there's a homework assignment called data, data Gathering Questions for Sexual Problems. And so if you go to our website and just search that of data gathering, it comes up. Or one of the neat things about the new revision of our website is there, there are reference numbers to each audio. So if you just, the numbers are hard reference too. So that's number 10033. If you type in 10033, that's the audio that's going to come up or the handout that's going to come up. But it lists a bunch of questions just about sexuality and one's sexual experiences that can be helpful to look at as you're working with someone who has these struggles because um, they may not be questions you're thinking of asking all the time. And so often I'll, I'll just look at that list and go with a highlighter and just say, I think this one would be helpful or relevant or this is a question I haven't asked and I think it would be important to know. So just know that that resource is out there as we seek to draw out what is this person's operating perception of sexuality. So those are some of the lies, but then I think what's more helpful almost than examining the lies is if we hold forward the truth, right? When we look at the truth, then you see how what a person's thinking or wanting or how they're acting isn't lining up with what the Bible's holding forth. And so 
As we think about truths about sex, I think one of the most helpful categories to think in terms of is the category of a blessing. The category of a blessing. Sex is a blessing created by God. And I find this category helpful in so many areas. It's not just when we're talking about, about sex, but it's, it's <laughs> almost every created thing, right? Food, it's a blessing given by God. Money, blessing given by God. Um, I did a talk on singleness, and I think shifting to thinking of singleness and marriage as both blessings given by God. I think these are really helpful categories that are often lacking in our own understanding. And when, when that category isn't there, uh, it's easy to distort either to make something bad or to make something a God instead of to make it a blessing. So let's talk about it as a blessing And notice that it addresses both sides of that spectrum. To the lie that says that sex is bad, this category of blessing says, no, sex is created by God and it's declared to be good within the context of marriage. And we find that in Genesis 2, 23 to 25, right? Um, Sex was declared to be good in its right context. Sex was also given for mutual delight, And um, this can often be lacking in our perception of marriage, that it's strictly for procreation or it's strictly for the pleasure of one spouse. But we see in 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 5, when Paul is talking about each one giving to the other their conjugal rights, part of what Paul is drawing out there is this is a gift given by God for mutual delight. And one of the things that um, Ian Duguid brings out a lot in his commentary is how both Uh, the woman and the man in the Song of Songs talk about how they delight in each other's bodies. And and that's just an amazing picture that we're given within the scriptures itself. So to this lie of sex is bad, we see it's, it's given by God. It's for mutual delight. But like every blessing, it has been affected by the fall. It's been affected. And so sexual immorality, sexual sins uh, happen on all kinds of levels and sexual desires are often distorted. But see, sex is not bad in and of itself, but it is used often in bad ways. And that's an important distinction to make because people will, they'll be functioning with this. They've seen it expressed in sinful ways. They've been affected by the sin um, done to them, or they know the distorted nature of the desires within. And they equate that with sex rather than saying, no, that's part of sex as a blessing that's been distorted by the fall. Uh, And so we want to help correct that. Sometimes the wife may be disgusted by her husband's seemingly insatiable sexual desire. It's not that sex is bad, but she may be rightly picking up on his wrong view of sex and the fact that he may be looking to sex as more of a God uh, than he should be. But it's important for her to understand the answer isn't just to say, no, it's bad and it should not be a part of our marriage. Um, That's not going to be the solution. And so sex is a blessing created by God Uh, It is not bad, and also it is not God. It is a blessing created by God. And so living in our society as we do and just being in advertising, seeing it as it's done, and uh, just the ethos of, of what's going on around us, messages that are constantly bombarding us are saying that sex is absolutely amazing and it's worth reorienting your life around sex. Um, It's elevated to God-like status. And the category of blessing says, no, wait a minute. (laughs) Blessings are not God. Uh, They are something from the hand of God. 
but one of the things I think we can be tempted to do when we hear that, when, when we're working with someone maybe who's struggling with pornography or lust, and, and you can tell that, that what's driving so much of that is they've bought into this lie that if they could only have this, they would be satisfied, this godlike nature of sex. Part of what we're tempted to do is then villainize sex, to say, no, it's, it's actually not that good. It's, it's not really that amazing. Go talk to married people or, you know, whatever. We can say these things that you look and it's, uh, is that actually holding up sex as a blessing? No, it's actually sh- just shifting from one extreme to the other. And what happens when we do that is, first of all, we're distorting the truths of Scripture, so that's going to be problematic. But then secondarily, we're usually losing an opportunity to minister to that person. Because if they're tempted to see sex as more than it is, us saying, it's really not, you should really think of it as down here, we're going to say, that's crazy. No one else says that. It doesn't make sense. And it doesn't even make sense with their own experience in some ways. Um, And so what we want to show them is not that sex is so much less, but what God is doing is so much bigger. That it is a blessing, but it's in a blessing of a context of so much more. And uh, so I think that's a helpful way of thinking about how to deal with it. So it's okay to affirm to someone who is idolizing sex that that makes sense and it's a great blessing and it's, it's an incredible uh, blessing from God, unique experience. It teaches us things about God. It's a good good, but then we can also show them, but it really makes a bad God, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Don't you find that it's an insatiable desire that never satisfies? Don't you see the ways in which it falls short, not because it's bad, but because it's actually just supposed to point to something greater. So as a blessing... Part of the truth of this is sex was designed to be created or to be used within a particular context. And so it's marriage with one spouse, which we know and, you know, can be affirmed by many passages. First Corinthians 7, Hebrews 13. Um, But as a blessing, it's important to realize that sex is not universally promised, is it? Is any blessing universally promised in scripture, really, as we think of material created blessings, especially? Um, like other blessings, they're given to some and not to others and in varying degrees. And a a huge paradigm for me is thinking of money and wealth, right? Um, Money is a blessing that enables us to do great things for the kingdom and to help other people. It also brings with it challenges because of our sinful temptations as we use it. And um, some have a lot of money and are able to use it in that way. Some have very little money, but both are equally blessed by God, and he's given them what is good for them. And so it's helpful to realize that sex fits within that category as well. And it's given for, it's, so it's given in varying degrees, depending on a person's situation in life. And it's also given temporarily, if, as you think about it. Um, so sex is not bad, but it's also not a God. It's a blessing. And so as we think about blessing a little bit more, um, I think a, a helpful word to categorize it as a blessing is that it's a temporary blessing. It's a temporary blessing. Uh, an undergirding assumption or lie is that sex is a need that must be met regularly. Um, that's what we're being told all the time. And it's being mocked in television shows if someone hasn't had uh, a sexual encounter with someone in a certain amount of time. It's, uh, it's held up as the solution. 
and um, no wonder you're so stressed out. How long has it been? All this kind of stuff. But this is shifting the categories from it being a blessing to saying, if it must be met regularly, then it shifts it into the category of it's this need that we have. And if it's a need like air and water that we must have it to survive, then it's can be, then we can justify all kinds of reasons of why we've gone and obtained it um, in ways that God has not designed. And so once we shift from blessing to need, we then are justifying all kinds of reasons of taking it outside of its, its blessing context. And so Jesus answers this in a really profound way. Uh, he's dealing with questions of the resurrection, but in, in Matthew 22, verses 29 to 30, we hear these important words that tell us so much about marriage, which by implication tell us about sex. Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they will neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. I know Sam uh, referenced this as well last night, but I think it's really important, um, especially when someone's tempted to view sex as a god, to realize that sex is not forever. It, by its very nature, is it's temporary. It's a gift of this age. It's not part of the age that is to come. And so when someone's starting to see it as a need that they have that must be fulfilled, it's, it's, let's zoom out and think about it a little bit. If it's that much of a need, why won't we need to have it in the eschaton? What, what does that tell us about its very nature? It's not an inalienable right. It's a temporary blessing. And if it's a temporary blessing, then God must have made us in such a way that we can be okay without that blessing. Uh, that's part of the nature of these blessings. And you can even walk through, and I do this especially with um, especially with younger guys, but it, it can work in other contexts as well. But just uh, when there's an idealized view of what sexual experience should look like, just thinking about it realistically through the stages of life can be a helpful exercise. You are not married your whole life. So obviously we're not meant to have sex throughout our whole lives. There's the pre-marriage stage. There's a post-marriage stage. There may be not a marriage stage. Um, And then there are times in marriage when sex is not possible or wise. Uh, There are times during and after pregnancy and sicknesses and injuries. Just think about life realistically and uh, and you really start to see it's it can't be this inalienable right or need. And even if we just blame all of this on unfortunate circumstances or exceptions, you know, I've talked to a lot of guys who think there'll be an exception to to every story they hear about the realities of life. Um, they may just put it in the category, well, that's just a result of the fall. But scripture reminds us of this this temporary character and and a great place to kind of land after the after Jesus teaching on Matthew 22 is does our view of sex account for Jesus himself does the most does the fact that the most blessed man who ever lived the fact that he never had a sexual relationship does that shape how one views their own sexuality and looking to Jesus and contemplating that has to help us see that it's not an inalienable right. It's not a God. It's a temporary blessing. And so as a, as a blessing, then, we know that sex points to something greater, right? 
all of the blessings that we've been given by God aren't for us to look at the blessing and say, wow, that blessing is so amazing, but to look from that blessing beyond to the hand of the giver and to learn amazing things about the creator and giver of that blessing as well as enjoy the blessing itself. And so we're tempted to pursue sex as the great thing and to think that having regular sex will bring me joy, that life is all about it. Um, But instead, it is supposed to point us to tell us things about God as well. It points us to the intimacy of what it's like to be known and loved by another person. It shows us what it's like to be truly vulnerable with another person. It shows us what it is to delight in another person and be delighted in. And the scriptures are telling us that's a picture of God's delight in his people and in us. And so all of, this, all of these things that a sexual relationship is designed to show us are pictures of what it's like to be in relationship with the triune God. Is Song of Songs about marital love and sex, or is it about God's love for us? Yes, <laughs> it's about both. And uh, Ian Dugan has done a great job unpacking that. And, and if you didn't catch that even in the lectures, it, it comes out in his commentaries really well. And so we can't be having sex all of the time, but we can have the real thing. We can have what it's actually pointing to, and that's intimate fellowship with the triune God. And so helping someone see that their cravings for this thing that they have made as a God are actually showing cravings for something that God has designed us to have within a relationship with him is a place that we want to try and take people. And it's important to affirm that this isn't easy to just say that intimacy with God and growing in that um, can help us experience and understand and know the things that sexual intimacy also teaches us. It is a sacrifice. It is a cost of discipleship. It is a struggle and a battle, but it's one that's worth it because you're accessing the archetype. You're accessing what it is truly that God is trying to show us even in the blessing, and it's truly rewarding. And so building out this category of blessing, I think, is really helpful in addressing lies that make sex either bad or a god. A few other um, truths that I'll just throw out real quickly for the sake of time is pursuing sex will not bring joy. Uh, pursuing sex in and of itself will not bring joy. And 2 Corinthians 5.9, we make it our aim to please God. That's, that's what our aim is. And what's interesting is as you talk with someone, you may come to realize that they are structuring so much of their life around the attaining of sex as a pursuit of joy. And it's, it's interesting, Alistair Groves mentions, um, the consequence of a view of life that worships at the altar of sex, even sex with one's wife, are subtle, pervasive, and dire. Such a view is fundamentally selfish and corrupts the way a man buys gifts for his wife, the way he does the dishes, the way he argues with his wife or placates her, and so on. If you hear places in a man's story where his life revolves around sex, help him see that this is what's going on, that that has become his pursuit rather than the pursuit of pleasing and honoring God. And I would just add, man or woman in that context. The article he's writing is particularly in helping men with pornography. Um, Another truth about sex is just that sex is primarily about giving to another. 
And so when we hear selfish views of sex, it's helpful to go to 1 Corinthians 7, 3. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife should give to her husband. It's, it's this mutual giving and blessing that is really God's design, and that's so uh, counterintuitive and often very countercultural. Tim Keller says, Sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. And he says, you must not use sex to say anything less. And so, so often it's pursued in a way of my pleasure rather than a self-giving and a covenantal affirmation. And uh, we need to help people see that. Um, Two other quick truths. And one is sexual sin uh, does hurt other people. Sometimes people buy into the lie that especially private sexual sins don't hurt anyone else. Uh, a helpful passage, James 1, 14 and 15. Lust conceives give birth, gives birth to sin and then sin gives birth to death. It's part of the course of what sin does is it hurts other people. And sometimes you can help people explore how even their private sexual sins are going to impact or already have impacted others. And even if it hasn't impacted others as much as maybe compelling to a person, it also impacts his or her relationship with God and the intimacy that they know and experience, especially if they're living in unconfessed sexual sin. And then the final truth just to to hold out about sex is that sexual sin is not the unpardonable sin. And I think that's really important to bring across to people because as much as sex is elevated as this amazing God that must be pursued at, at all cost, there's also this stigma with it and this feeling of guilt and shame that accompanies it that many people feel condemned and judged and like they will never be able to move beyond it. And that's part of what we have to address as well. So is that making sense so far? I know kind of lots of things, but that first category, what is this person thinking about sex and are they viewing it as a blessing? And how can we address that biblically uh, to try and, and bring it back into more how God views it? And so those are some of the things that you're listening for. But I find one of the most significant categories that that maybe we don't always think of uh, that undergirds this and I find probably even more powerful than the lies that are being viewed about sex itself are the lies about God, the lies that we come to believe about God. Um, You may have noticed how connected sex as a blessing is with thoughts about God, the the giver of the blessing. It's, It's so connected that it makes sense that if you're viewing the blessing wrongly, you're probably viewing the giver of the blessing wrongly as well. And so we want to bring to light both of those things. You can correct views of sex all you want, but if the if a person doesn't rightly understand the giver of that gift, then he or she will never rightly enjoy that gift or view it um, properly. It's, it's that subtle lie of Eden that creeps in, that God is forbidding what is good. God is not giving me what is best. And I can see what's most appealing and I can take it for myself And I can be like God if God's not going to do what his um, job is to do or to do the best for me. And so I think lies about God typically fall in one of two categories and, and maybe both. One is that God doesn't know. And the other is that God doesn't care or God doesn't love. And as you listen to a person talk about, um, why they went to this sexual sin, 
um, what was going on in their heart that made that seem appealing to pursue, often it's somehow related into the fact either God doesn't know what I really need. He's not paying attention. He made a mistake when he created me. He doesn't know what's best for me. Or it's in this category of God doesn't love. Maybe he knows what's best for me, but he doesn't want to give it to me. I I haven't earned good things from him. God's punishing me by not giving me the good things that he knows I need. He doesn't accept me. He doesn't love me. Even that good things and blessings like sex are for other people, but for some reason, maybe because of past sins or whatever, God is withholding them from this person. And as soon as we start to think that God is withholding something good from us, then it justifies in our head our reason for going and getting, for taking that fruit, right? So I just want to walk through a few passages that I feel like really build a case for this fundamental lie that we're tempted to believe that God is not um, giving me what is best for me. This, this became really clear to me in talking with a young man um, over, over a course of, of quite a while, and he was struggling early on with things like de- depression and discouragement and, and just spiritual apathy. And all along, you know, you're wondering in the back of your mind, um, how is pornography related to this as, as a single man? Like, where is that fitting in? But, but that wasn't coming out in the questions that I was asking and even being denied. But eventually we got to the reality of that struggle. So then there's, there's a sexual sin that we know is going on behind this, um, also this discouraged, apathetic view of God. And then, but as we came to talk further, it was why was it that these sexual sins were appealing? What was it that's going on? And part of what was happening is uh, this young man longed for a wife, as many young men do, um, but he was convinced that God would not give him an attractive wife like the wives that he sees at the gym. Instead, God would give him a good wife who he would not be very attracted to. And that frustration of just the reality of the Christian experience, how he had interpreted how it was going to have to happen, um, would be very provoking to him. And out of that, he would find, you know, pornography and indulging in this um, desire that he had to be comforting in the face of God's plan that wasn't going to be what he really needed. And it was amazing how as soon as we got to this understanding of God and how God views him and how God views blessing him, then all of a sudden those other issues became so much more minor. Um, The battle was really in going to the gym and looking around and thinking, look at all these good things God is withholding from me. Uh, That was the mindset, which then was so provoking to running and saying, then I will take it for myself if he won't. Uh, But then being constrained by Christian rules and things that he believed that would keep him from, you know, going all the way in that, but it was this, this tortured state. So um, how, do we, how do we deal with this? Well, the root of these concerns is a fundamental misunderstanding of God and how he's acting towards us. And this applies to so many other topics. Um, but let's build up these truths about God that then help us with these struggles. And the bottom line truth is this. God knows us and he loves us And he is right now giving us exactly what we need and what is good for us. God knows us 
because some of the lies are that he doesn't know. God loves us because if we're in Christ, we know that for sure. And that even right now, he is giving us exactly what we need and what is good for us. We have to have an, a view of God that encompasses all of these things. And that's what makes these then sexual temptations be put back in their proper perspective. That would make, that's what makes the allure of the forbidden fruit go away, is how the word of God addresses that God knows and he loves and he is giving now. So for God knows us, you know, we can go to Psalm 119 verses 13 to 16, where it talks about God's knowledge of us as, as we were created. He saw our unformed substance in, in his book was written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me and, um, and going on in just this amazing fact of God knows who you are and uh, has taken an active role in that. Matthew 6 It's in the context of worry, but it it reminds us again that God knows because in Matthew 6, verse 32, uh, well, let's start in verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And then verse 32, and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. He knows what you need already. And so God knows And God also gives us what we need, and he gives us what is good for us. In Matthew 7, it's the ask, the seek, and ask, and knock passage, right? And for so long, I was focusing so much on this asking, and what does that mean, that I kind of didn't ever hear the end of it or think through it. But Jesus says this in Matthew 7, verses 7 through 12. I find this to be a really helpful passage with these issues. It says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. And then catch this, this analogy that he gives us. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So it starts out with this idea of ask. And, and with this young man, we walked through this passage together. And, um, and I'll explain a little bit about just what was going on there. But asking in its very nature, it indicates a state of dependence, It's coming and saying, God, you know, and you have what I need. And I'm asking that you will give me what is good and what is best. Um, It includes humility. You have what I need. Will you give it to me? How different would the outcome have been in the garden if Eve had gone and asked God about Satan's accusations? God, are you really withholding good for me? <laughs> is the fruit really that good for me? And, and why won't you give it to me? And, and gone and heard his word as opposed to Satan's word that he was giving to her. <clears throat> so asking helps us with that. But then also notice that the thrust of the passage is our father in heaven gives good gifts. He gives good things. What kind of father um, that we'd have 
knows what's truly good for his child and delights in withholding it from him. Now, there may be cases of that in this life because of sin and because of the fall and, and those horrific experiences. But he's appealing to this, this idea of normally a father knows what a child needs. And if, if your kid is asking for bread, saying, can I just have food for the day? Dad doesn't say, yeah, well, here's a rock. Chew on that for a while. Or the kid comes and says, boy, I really need some fish. Like, we're really hungry. And then you hold out your hand and close your eyes and you give him a snake. I mean, it's just twisted. It's strange, right? Well, he goes in, the, in this argument. He's saying, how much more then will God who loves us perfectly and who knows perfectly what, what we need, he will give that good thing. That's what he delights to do. And so the problem is we often interpret not getting what we desire as God giving us a stone or God giving us a serpent. Lord, I'm asking for this. I, I want an attractive wife. I, I want a husband who understands me and, and loves me. And, and you're not giving it to me. You're giving me a serpent right now. And then the logic follows. If God will only give me a stone, then I'll go get bread another way. And so you see, then it justifies our sexual sins. But if we can come to understand that the very situation we find ourselves in is a situation where God knows what we need and is actively giving us the bread, giving us the fish, the very situation that we're in, as difficult as it may be, even if it's a withholding of the blessing itself, it's because that withholding is what's good for us. And as we can come to see the, as God as a giver of these good gifts, who's not giving us stones and snakes, then it undercuts this need to then go find these things somewhere else. Another powerful passage in this regard is James 1, 16 through 18. And in James 1, it says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Right there. There's a temptation to be deceived about something, right? What is it that we're tempted to be deceived about in that passage? Does anyone know? It's every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Do you see what James is doing there? It's brilliant. He's raising this, this temptation that we have to be deceived and to be deceived about what? about where good gifts come from and who they come from. And he says, you've got to understand, they come down from the Father of lights. And then he says, with whom there is no variation, there's no shadow due to change. He never changes. It's part of his very character to give what is good and loving. And then he reminds us of his own will. No one forced him to do it, but he brought you forth to be part of his new creation through the redemptive work of Christ. If God did that for you, do you think that he would then give you snakes and stones? Or do you think that he instead will pour out those good gifts upon you? But we're tempted to be deceived. And then for me, just logically, that just takes us then to Romans 8 and and passages that we know so well, but I think are so key in walking through this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. And then verse 29 tells us to what end. 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. It reminds us that all things for those who love God are being used for our good and for his glory. So not having a spouse, but longing for sexual fulfillment, battling with disordered desires or same-sex attraction or heterosexual attraction and lust, having a spouse who's hard to love and who doesn't care about you in the way you want to be cared about, even the sexual difficulties, either physically or even emotionally tied to that in marriage, for your good, that you'd be conformed into the image of Christ. These things are something that God is allowing and bringing into your life that he can make you see more than just the blessing but the one who's the giver of the blessing in a way that you never have before. And yeah, you haven't earned this blessing. Uh, You haven't earned this goodness and graciousness of God. But it's, it's a good thing that God isn't withholding it just because we haven't earned it. But Christ has earned it for us. And that's, that's just what's an incredible thing. As we move down in Romans 8, then we come to this passage that I just think is the pinnacle of these truths as we're bringing them together. It says in Romans 8, 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Doesn't that just bring together all the threads we've been exploring about these truths about God? that he gave us Christ so that we could be forgiven and enter into the most blessed life ever and be experiencing that now by the very spirit of Christ himself and guaranteed the full expression of it one day in the age to come. All of that has been given to us. Why in the world would God then say, I know this would be good and great for them, but I'm just going to withhold it. No, it, it doesn't make any sense. And so um, when we see that God gave us Christ, it's not that sex is small or that sex is not a good thing. It's just that it's one blessing amidst a sea of blessings that have been bestowed upon us. And our loving Heavenly Father knows what and when and where and how each blessing will be best for you in this life And he gives and he withholds accordingly based on what is truly best and most loving for you. You can see that these categories don't apply only to sexual sin, do they? But it's at the core of so much of our unbelief and our justification for sin and, and why we run to these other things and why we look to them as gods. Because we fail to see the goodness and the grace of God in the present, giving us exactly what we need. And maybe you've been living in a way that means that this blessing of sexuality isn't what's, what's right for you right now, um, but that's different than it would be good for you, but God doesn't want to give it to you. You know, maybe it's because um, of sexual sin and misuse and idolatry of it that for now God knows what is best is that that's withheld. And maybe it's what is best is that you're experiencing it Um, within the context of marriage in a very blessed way. But that's not based on our performance um, because the work of Christ guarantees us he will give us what is good and best. 
So we've talked about distorted view of distorted views of sex. It's bad or it's a God. And we say, no, it's a blessing to be enjoyed, which is an amazing thing. We've talked about distorted views of God, but he is the loving giver of everything that's good for you, including sexual fulfillment and his giving and withholding. And then finally, I just want to talk briefly about distorted views of success, and then we'll, um, we'll wrap it up. This is really uh, a category of insufficient views of what success or victory or really sanctification in the Christian life looks like. And I found this often tied up with sexual sins. And it's, it's important for us to address what progressive sanctification is going to look like in the life of the believer. Uh, there are several tel- television shows right now that my wife and I like to watch um, that are very entertaining. But one of the things that they, a theme that's being brought out in these shows is the involvement in and validity of 12-step programs. And so several of the main characters in each of these shows are part of a 12-step program and, um, and, and going through various addictive struggles, either with alcohol or with, with drugs. And in this one particular show, a man had been uh, sober for 15 years. And then, you know, the night goes south, life doesn't go his way, and he turns to the bottle, and then he gets drunk, and then they show him next at a meeting, and it's day one all over again, right? And um, with AA, that's essentially saying that there's a disease, but there's no cure. The only solution really is to kind of work the program. Um, What's missing, even though a lot of good can be done through some of the, the concepts that are being brought out there, but what is missing is an understanding of growth in the process, right? That God is doing something in that 15 years, if you are truly looking to him uh, to grow in the midst of that struggle. God is work at work in the process, not just the results or the success. And I think when it comes to sexual sin, since it's such an external and, and measurable thing in so many ways, that we are tempted to have the same approach as believers. And the question becomes based on the results of have I looked at porn? Have I masturbated? Have I hooked up with someone on the internet? Um, how long has it been since that's happened? And, and the results and the progress is all measured in terms of the externals. And so we zoom in on the blessing and we make the whole issue about are you using it rightly or misusing it? And that's the gauge of, that's kind of the sphere of what God is doing. But we're missing the bigger picture. God wants to work in our hearts to make us people who respond to the blessing appropriately. He wants to do more in our lives than just being a policeman who keeps us from misusing blessings. He wants us to come to trust him more, to run to him more, to delight in him more, uh, and then to help us delight in what he is giving us even more than we were before. And so the question And it's okay to check in on logistical, functional, measurable things, but it should never stop there. And I would often say maybe it shouldn't start there because sometimes if we always are starting there, that's the framework we're working for. But have I grown in my desire for the blessings that sex points to? (laughs) Are you growing in your desire for God himself? And why or why not? And how can we help you in that? And these other things um, can be external measures of what the person is worshiping. And so just a few lies about success, and then I'll just throw out some, some truths about it, and then we'll go from there. But 
Lies can be victory means that I won't be tempted. Struggling in itself is not victory. I need to be cured of this. The temptation, the desire needs to go away. Um, And then I just need more rules. I just need more resolve. Or when I fail, God loves me less. These are many of the lies that you'll hear as, as you seek to have someone describe what would it look like for you to be, to be living victorious in this area? What, what are you praying to the Lord for that he will do in your area of struggle with sexuality? And you start to hear these things of the, that I won't even be tempted anymore, that, um, that God will, you know, um, show favor upon me again. You start to hear these kinds of things and then you can address them with some truths. But here are just a few truths. Um, Sex is a blessing given by God. I'm tempted to think that it's bad. I'm tempted to think it's a God. But really, it's a fight of faith that I'm involved in right now. It's a battle of sanctification. And so some of the truths are being tempted does not mean you have failed. Being tempted in and of itself doesn't mean you have failed. Jesus was tempted. And you look together at Hebrews 2.18 and Hebrews 4.15 and, and you learn about how he stood up under that temptation. But see, if we view sexuality uh, and these sins as something that needs to be cured, um, then temptation becomes a failure. And, and what we want to have, the issue is not if you are tempted, it's what you do with that temptation. It's where you go from there, right? God is actively at work in your temptation, not tempting you to sin, but using that temptation as an opportunity for you to turn in dependence upon him. In 1 Corinthians ten thirteen, to look to this faithful God for the way of escape of not sinning in response to that temptation. God is at work in that temptation instead of just saying, oh, if I'm tempted, I throw in the towel and it's over and I might as well just go headlong into that. Temptation is an opportunity to run to God. And so being tempted does not mean you have failed. Also, every resisted temptation is an opportunity for worship. One of my favorite things that I get to do in helping people one-on-one is to help people see God at work in their lives and to help them praise God for that. Because so often they're in the thick of it and they just feel like they're failing all around, right? But we get the vantage point of sitting outside of it and seeing that any inclination towards what is right, any withstanding of temptation, any desire to to confess that or to turn and forsake it, that's a work of the Spirit. That's the Spirit's work in this person's heart. And we can say, God is at work in you. Let's stop right now and let's praise him for the way that he's creating this tension within your soul, that he's creating a longing for something more. Let's stop and thank God for how he is at work. And every temptation that you resist is an evidence of the Spirit's work. Uh, That's an incredible thing to be able to point out. And, And not only is it an opportunity for worship, in praising God for what he's done, but it becomes an opportunity for joy, that you can start to find joy in resisting temptation. Um, When you start to see that the Spirit is helping you fight this, you can come to realize that fighting is in and itself a victory, and it's the Spirit's work, and that brings you joy. Um, Alistair Grove says this, victory is in evidence when you begin to delight and absenting yourself from tempting situations rather than feeling like you are fasting while sitting in a restaurant. 
You see the difference there? That one's just saying, there's a great blessing out there and I'm just, woe is me that I have to resist it to the way the spirit wants to work in our hearts is that we could say, work in me and help me resist this temptation because I know that that is better for me. That's a good gift from you, that it will be more rewarding uh, than this temptation that's held out to me. And I can find joy in resisting it rather than just sadness that I'm not having that blessing in the way I want it. And then next, so resisted temptation is an opportunity for worship. Weakness is also an opportunity for worship. Sexual sins often cause people to feel very weak and powerless because of the intense both physical and spiritual hold that these uh, things often bring. And so there's this temptation to say, I can't believe I still struggle with this. I can't believe how weak I am. Why won't God take these desires away? Why won't he remove the temptation? And then we go to 2 Corinthians 12, verses 8 to 10. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Then Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And that's just not throwing up our hands and saying, well, I'm weak, so I should just give in. It's saying, Lord, you know how weak I am. Help me to fight. I need you to help me to fight, to struggle but then also see that this awareness of the, the weakness and the struggle becomes an opportunity, a stage for the power of God through Christ to be seen. And when he gives us the power to fight and to struggle, we give him the praise. We say, that's not because we had the strength to do it. God is at work in me, and so therefore I can worship him for that work. And then finally, um, confession is an opportunity for worship. And this could be a whole talk in and of itself. And in fact, it will be. Tomorrow, Milton Vincent is doing a talk called Confessing Our Way to Joy. And I am just so excited for that to come out because um, he's going to talk about how confession can actually be worshipful. And I think so often we view confession as the ultimate evidence that you've failed. Now I've got to confess I blew it instead of even in this confession, God is at work doing something good within me and I can praise him for his love and his forgiveness and his grace and and I can boldly confess my sin and yet powerfully ask for his help to battle against it. There's a book by, um, well, I mentioned it earlier, but um, it's by Barbara Duguid and Wayne Hauk and um, Ian Duguid also helped edit it, but Prone to Wander and its prayers of confession and assurance. And I just find for my own soul and then in the lives of the people that I'm helping, it models for us what this looks like. And in the midst of these sins and failures that we often feel so overwhelmed and guilty and beaten down about, it shows us the gospel path towards joy in the forgiveness and grace of Christ. And, and it's broken down topically, too, for those of you who may not have seen it, but they take all kinds of topics, and sexual sins actually occur in there several times. And so you can photocopy those pages and, and give them to someone and say, pray through these and read through and meditate these verses and make this prayer your own this week. And it's teaching them how to think through their own weaknesses and failure in a God-glorifying, God-honoring way. 
where we're amazed at his forgiveness, grace, and love. So just in summary, I know that's a lot of lies and truths, but three main categories, right? What are the lies about sex that a person has come to believe? And how do we show them that it's a blessing and can be used in its proper place? What are the lies about God, either that he doesn't know or he doesn't love? And how can we show them from the scripture? And I think walking through those passages that we did, that he knows us, he loves us. And right now, this very moment, he is giving you what is good. It is bread and fish that's coming to you, not stones and snakes. And then finally, what are you believing about success? Do you believe that God will never do this work in your heart or just because you're struggling with it, you don't have his favor upon you or he's not at work? No, it's, it's helping to see him at work, even in the struggle, even in the failure, even in the weakness, and to see that as an opportunity to praise him all the more as we run desperately asking for his help that he would, by his spirit, make us more and more like Christ and to view him as the good giver of all these great blessings. Jesus, when he was here on earth, he talked about Satan himself and he said, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And we see how Satan has helped promulgate many of these lies that we're tempted in our hearts already to believe. But then there's this great news that Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And as we help people see what lies they've come to believe about these issues, the word of God can bring the truth and knowing and believing that truth and seeing this loving God behind all these truths helps us then truly be free from enslavement to these sexual sins. And so I pray uh, for all of us that that would be the case in our own lives and then that the Lord would give us grace as we seek to help others in these struggles as well. So thank you for your time and your attention. And uh, look forward to the next workshop and the rest of the conference. Thanks so much. Copyright 2016, IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.